please turn in your Bibles this evening to Galatians chapter 6 and to verse 14. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. I'm not going to spend long this evening talking about this verse within its context. I hope you'll forgive that. Uh, perhaps we ought to spend some time to see where this verse fits into the Apostles' argument. But I really want to look at this verse this evening more as a kind of motto text. A text that every one of us ought to and could so very easily commit to memory. And it's such a help to every one of us here who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ this evening. Some of us here are preachers. What a motto text for preachers. God forbid that I as a preacher should glory in anything save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And anyone who has the privilege of standing to minister the word of God must regularly examine themselves and ask themselves the question, have I, is it my great objective in uh, examining a passage of scripture to take the congregation to the foot of the cross? Am I glorying in the cross? Is that the sole ground on, of salvation that is being presented to men and women and to boys and girls? So for a preacher, it's an ideal motto text. God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone here has anything to do with the young, whether that be uh, by way of being a Sunday school teacher or within families, and I'm talking not only of our children, but our grandchildren and other children in the wider family. It's a motto text for us in the Sunday school as we teach the children and we're concerned to impart to them something of the truth of the word of God and there are many wonderful things about which we can speak and the stories of the Bible grip the hearts, the minds of the young. But for a Sunday school teacher, God forbid that I should glory or be so diverted as to focus on other things to the detriment of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the home, among the children uh, where I have an influence, is it evident to them that the one thing that is important to me or to us as a family is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ? as we gather the children, perhaps, in the home, and we have a, a time of devotion with them, we read the Bible, do we show them the cross? In our life, in our lifestyle, uh, before the young, are we concerned that what comes across is something of that text? They took note of them that they had been with Jesus. Something about even our demeanour points the way to our total dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ, his sacrifice upon the cross as the central fact, the thing to which we cling, 
the thing that is most important to everything that we are and everything that we do. It's a motto text for our dealings with the young, but even as individuals and our life of witness. We go out uh, from our Lord's Day of worship and service for the Lord. We go out into the world and we rub shoulders with those who are outside of the kingdom of God. Those in our workplace where we study, our neighbours, our acquaintances. Do we so live as to honour this text? It could be a motto text for us in our ordinary lives. God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is there something about the way I conduct myself that commends the gospel, commends the Saviour, to those uh, with whom I rub shoulders. Then, of course, we can talk about the church and individual churches. And I'm, I'm not here suggesting that uh, the congregation should be nitpicking, but are we uh, watchful about who we invite into the pulpit, who we invite to come and share the word of God with us? Are we concerned that we're brought constantly to the cross that the facts of the cross and all that was accomplished there are laid before us. And we, if we go many uh, uh, sermons without hearing of the cross and have these things unfolded to us, we should raise a concern. These are important things. God forbid that Gordon Road Evangelical Church should glory in anything save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and that long that this place should be a place that all know that here you'll hear of the soul-saving merits of the Lord Jesus Christ, of his sacrifice upon the cross. This will be set before men and women, boys and girls. Well, let's come then to these glorious words. God forbid that I should glory, says the Apostle Paul. And as he uses those words, God forbid, he is making a solemn undertaking and pledge. This for the Apostle Paul, and I hope we can stand with him in this. This for him was his life's ambition. This for him was his settled determination that he would glory in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and glory in that alone. And we challenge ourselves. Do we commit and pledge in such an unreserved way to glory only in the cross? But you know, I need to take you just a little further. God forbid, says the Apostle Paul. And I do remember that Paul was brought up in the school of Jewish uh, an understanding of the scriptures. He knew the law. He knew the commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And he took that very seriously. And so if here he invokes the name of God, God forbid, he really means it. And I ask you, I challenge myself as I challenge you, can you come that far with the Apostle Paul and really say and mean, God 
please forbid it that I should glory in anything save the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now at the end of the service, we're going to sing that hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And we'll take to our lips those words, Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the cross of Christ my God. I won't be looking, but only sing those words if you can really mean them. God forbid. May God prevent it. If I, anything should so uh, happen in my life to divert me from this single-minded determination to glory in the cross and the cross alone. Lord, we are saying, Lord, so arrange my circumstances that it cannot be. Warn me, if necessary. Chastise me, should I seem to be straying, even a metre, even a little bit, from that settled determination. Forbid it, Lord. Withhold blessing from me, if necessary. Oh, these are humbling words when we begin to think of them in this way. God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever it takes, Lord, enable me to maintain this desire to glory in the cross and in the cross alone. Well, let me ask you the question, do you glory in the cross? You know what it's like when you meet someone and perhaps you've never met them before and you start to engage in pleasantries and the conversation goes on in fairly straightforward ways. But perhaps as the conversation develops, you stray onto a subject that is a special interest to the person that you're speaking of. Perhaps it's their hobby. Perhaps it's something that they have a passion for. And there's almost a tangible change in their demeanour. Their eyes light up. They become animated. And the conversation moves so swiftly and so smoothly because now you're on a subject that really means something to them. Well, is that true of us? Would those who know us say of us that when the subject of Jesus Christ and the cross is, uh, comes up, that's when I see them at their most excited. That's when I see their eyes sparkle. There's something about them, and it really means something to them. God forbid that I should glory save in the cross, and we ought to glory in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to think about the cross for a moment or two. You see, in the Roman Empire, there were thousands of crosses. How many thousands, it's impossible to say. But our verse says, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Among all those many thousands of crosses that we often, we hear often lined the roads of the criminals and rebels that were put to death in this manner. This one cross stands alone. This one cross 
is glorious by comparison to them. What is it about that one cross that makes it so glorious? Well, every Roman cross, every single one of them was a place of brutality. And the method of crucifixion for putting to death a criminal or a rebel, you might almost say is a refinement of brutality. There was the criminal, often beaten and subjected to horrific injury even being before being placed upon the cross. And then they would be nailed to the cross and the cross would be lifted and dropped into its socket. But remember, every Roman cross had that brutality. Everyone who was crucified experienced those things. So what is it about the cross, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, let me try to express it this way. Involved in the crucifixion of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, were the combined forces of both the Roman uh, Empire and the Jews. And that is a picture of all humanity. It's an expression of all mankind's hatred and rejection of the Lord our God and of the Saviour whom he sent into the world. None of us were physically there, physically present, but it was our sins that pinned him to that tree. It was my sin that was laid upon him that put him there. It was my hatred pictured in the brutality as the Saviour hung in the scorching heat with his body lacerated by the whipping, the thought, crown of thorns placed upon his head, all that he was subjected to is an expression of my rejection of the Saviour before he began to deal with me. And we glory in the cross because our Saviour, the second person of the Godhead, had all power. He could have come down from that cross and yet he hung there. He remained there because he was determined to suffer that brutality so that he could pay the penalty on the behalf of you and I if we have come to repent of our sins and put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What love was shown by our Saviour. God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. But you know, secondly, every Roman cross was a place of shame. And part of the punishment of the criminal or rebel was that they would be stripped of their clothing. And as I've said, very often they would have been beaten savagely before being put upon the cross. And the idea was that here was an open exhibition. This person was a rebel, dared to shake their fist at Rome's mighty power. Look at him now. This person was a murderer, a thief. Look at him now. The shame that was poured upon all those who were crucified. Every single Roman cross 
But what about the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ? Here's the astonishing thing. The shame pictured there was the shame that I should have borne as a guilty sinner before my God. But he endured that shame on my behalf. Oh, the cross for the Christian believer is so glorious because the shame that I should have taken, he gladly bore so that I could be set free from the penalty of sin and given everlasting life. Thirdly, every Roman cross had on the, the cross those who were regarded as guilty. And above the head of each of those criminals, the charge was nailed. This one is a murderer. This one is a thief. This one fomented a, a rebellion against Rome. And the charge, the, the crime that they had committed was there, plain for all to see. But you know, whether he knew it or not, Pilate, when he wrote the inscription that was placed above the head of our Saviour, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, whether he intended it or not, perhaps unintentionally told the world that this one was different. There was no sin, no crime. For which, he was for which he was hanging there. This one was the only cross upon which there was someone who was perfectly guiltless. You know those Jewish authorities, if there was a sin, oh, it's almost uh, blasphemous to think of it, if there was even the smallest taint in the character of our Saviour, could have named it, and it could have been put there. But there was no sin. He was a, a lamb without blemish and without spot. And even that proclamation, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, assures us of the glory of the cross. The one who suffered in my place was guiltless. He had to be guiltless in order to take my suffering and to secure my salvation and that of all those who come to him. But there's a fourth thing that we can think of. Every Roman cross was a statement, a statement of the power and invincibility of Rome. Oh, you, you attempt what you like. You'll be crushed. You'll be put to death. Every Roman cross says, doesn't matter what you try to do, we will uh, snuff you out. We will bring you to nothing. And you know, there's something we can learn about the glory of the cross even here. Because that's true also in the spiritual realm. As our Saviour hung there upon the cross, in my mind's eye, I see the enemy of souls, Satan, thinking this is the moment of my triumph. This one who came into the world, the so-called Messiah, is going to die. It's all going to come to nothing. But as he hung there upon the cross, the enemy of our souls, imagining a great victory, actually things couldn't have been more different. 
because the greatest victory of all was accomplished as our sin was taken away and paid, the debt paid by our dear Saviour. Here's another aspect of every Roman cross. Every Roman cross resulted in the death of the person crucified. But there's a great contrast. And the word of God makes this very clear. All the Gospels are united in this. John chapter 19 and verse 30. He bowed his head and gave up the ghost. He dismissed his spirit. It wasn't the crucifixion, the act of crucifixion that killed the Lord Jesus Christ. There's such a contrast because he endured death, the penalty of sin for all of his people. He willingly went to death. He yielded himself to death. The crucifixion itself, that act, didn't kill him. He took our death. And therefore we glory in the cross. And then lastly, every Roman cross extinguished a, re a rebel and brought to nothing uh, the, that act against the Roman authorities. And those who were the followers, well, they would be crushed as they saw their hero leader there upon the cross They'd get committed themselves to him. And now there he was, dying in terrible agony on a cross. And so they would dissipate, they would go away. The rebellion would be no more. But what a contrast with the cross of our Saviour. And Pilate was right. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, a kingdom was being established as the Saviour hung there upon the cross. The dying thief understood it. He understood the spiritual significance of what was going on and having railed against the Saviour for a time, was smitten and convicted and appealed to the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. He understood that here, Dying alongside him was a king and the kingdom was being established. This was like a coronation. This was the establishment of a glorious kingdom, a kingdom that transcended all natural boundaries, not limited geographically, not limited by social class or education. This transcended everything. And so he appealed to the Saviour, and he became a part of that kingdom. And ever since our Saviour's crucifixion, that kingdom has continued to grow. Countless thousands, millions, have been added to that kingdom. It continues to advance in the hearts of all who come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And one day, when he comes again, will be shown to be a glorious kingdom when he receives us to himself. We glory in the cross because it establishes a kingdom, the only source of salvation. Oh, but we can glory in the cross for any number of reasons. And I won't detain you. But here, of course, upon the cross, we see the horrendous nature of sin. 
And that gives us cause to glory in the cross. As we picture the Saviour hanging there and God the Father putting upon his pure and spotless soul my guilt, your guilt, if you're among those who have sought the Lord Jesus Christ and punished him in my place. And he was prepared to go through all that how awful sin must really be. It causes us to re-examine even our view of sin. It shows us, though, that uh, God's justice has been vindicated. Not one sin was omitted. For among those who would be saved, each and every one taken and taken in full, we glory in the cross, even as we consider these things. But you know, the verse goes on. And it's important that we look at the entire verse. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. We glory in the cross also, because it has a transforming effect upon us. It changes us, and it changes us entirely. And the order here is significant. First of all, the world is crucified to me. You see, before I became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, before the cross became of any relevance to me, I was in love with the world. I was immersed in the world and all its thought patterns. I had no concern for my soul. But in order to be brought to salvation, I had to be shown through the futility of a life given to purely material things. And it came to a point where I was prepared to let go of this world and, as it were, for the world to be crucified to me. I finally see that everything that it has to offer is worthless, futile, and only to my eternal uh, harm. And when the world became crucified to me, then the glory of the cross first dawned upon my mind. And I ran to the cross, and I clung to the cross, and I cast myself upon the mercy and grace of the Saviour as he hung there. And I began to repent of my sin and call upon him for salvation. He heard and he blessed me. But the world is now crucified to me. And that's a a, a lasting transformation. But here's the challenge. Why then, as Christian believers, are we tempted to be drawn back into the world Oh, it's certainly my experience, and I'm sure it's yours too, that there are periods in our Christian life and experience when even as those who have been blessed with so much were drawn aside for a time and chased the things of this world. Oh, we have our responsibilities. We're in the home, in society at large, in the workplace, many responsibilities that we have and we need to keep these in balance and never allow 
these things to take over and to take the place of the cross as the most important things to us. Imagine this. A mother is having a clear out at home. She's got a a grown-up son and he's now moved out. He's uh, got his own place. And so mum's having a clear out at home. And as she clears out, she finds some of the toys that he used to play with when he was a toddler. And it just happens that as she's sorting through all of these things, that the son comes home. And there they are, the, the, the bricks or the little cars or whatever it is that, that intrigued him when he was a little toddler. There they are. And as her son comes in, his eyes light up and you can't speak to him. He can't engage. He's now focused upon those toys. And he's become that little toddler again. Oh, the, the, the very thought of a thing would be ridiculous that a grown man could be so engaged with things that he left in his childhood. Well, you may say to me, and you'd be right, that the illustration is hardly uh, valid because the change from being a child to being an adult is incremental. It took place over a period of time and the change was very gradual. Okay, let's change the illustration. And in one sense, I apologize for the illustration, but I want to convey something of how awful it is if we glory in the cross to be drawn aside again into the things of the world. Imagine a married man or a married woman. And that married man begins to look at members of the opposite sex and to entertain thoughts of affection and desire towards those members of the opposite sex. And we could reverse uh, the illustration, of course. Well, such things are horrific to think of. But you know, it fits what's being said here perfectly. Because at the moment of my conversion, it's a little bit like the vows that are taken in a marriage ceremony. When I marry my wife, what I'm saying is I give up in all interest in other women and I now focus upon my wife-to-be. She now is my love. She is the one that has all my affection. She is the one uh, for whom I will provide and so on. And to even look and to entertain thoughts outside of that relationship Well, it's too horrific to contemplate. But so is to go back into the world. Because for us, when we took our vows and we committed our life into the hand of our Saviour, it's as though we said, the world is dead to me. The world is crucified to me. I've seen through it. I'm changed. Oh, physically I look the same, just as the person who gets married looks the same. But there's a change a fundamental change, and we mustn't go back. But then see what it goes on to say. God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me. I would never have come. I would never have 
found salvation, never have turned to the Saviour if he hadn't first helped me see through the world. But now that the world is crucified to me, the world crucifies me to itself and I unto the world. And it's vital that we take this on board and we understand this by our allegiance to the Saviour and particularly to the cross as the only way of salvation. We place ourselves in opposition to the things of this world. We don't intend to oppose the world or confront the world in any meaningful sense, but just the fact that we renounce the world as our portion means that the world now turns its back upon us. And we gladly take the rejection of the world as part and parcel of coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you might like to turn to John chapter 15, where the Lord Jesus Christ tells us that this is going to be the case. Verses 18 to 20. If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, and of course, before your conversion you were of the world, if ye were of the world, the world would love his own, would leave you alone, would welcome you. You're part of our gang. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. The Lord Jesus made it very clear that those who are his true disciples would know something of the rejection of the world. As we have seen through the world, the world denies us. And it may be in this week to come, there's the possibility of a promotion. But you're a Christian believer. And for the sake of your Christian profession, you're glorying in the cross. You won't cut corners. You won't compromise. You won't take shortcuts and do those things which are questionable uh, practice, showing a lack of integrity in the workplace. And perhaps you'll be overlooked for that promotion. Well, that's hard. That's difficult. But this verse may help. God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified to me and I unto the world. This explains it all. It may be that it's derision or scorn or being laughed at for your profession. But it gives us a basis upon which we can process and we can rationalise these things. The Saviour said it would be so. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is the sole ground upon which we stand. It's my source of strength in ministry, in witness, in living before a watching world. It's the pledge of future blessings, of course. And you know it will keep me from worldliness to glory in the cross. Oh, you want to be kept this week? Think much of the cross.
glory in the cross. That'll help you in dark moments. That'll uphold you when things are going wrong. That'll keep you on the straight and narrow when there are successes and you're on the verge of taking the glory to yourself. Think of the cross. But is there someone here? Someone who, for the time being, has succumbed to worldliness, been drawn aside, even a little, or perhaps for an extended period, and your spiritual life and experience has become barren and arid, and they draw so little from private devotions and from the services of worship, go back to the cross. Glory in the cross. The more you fix your gaze upon the cross and all that the Saviour accomplished there, you'll be drawn back. Your heart will be melted. How can I ever have indulged those thoughts and gone back to those old ways? Repent and consider Christ and all that he has done. Oh, the cross is so wonderful. May the Lord help us in the days to come to glory only in the cross. Let's sing then our closing hymn this evening. It's the hymn 203. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast Save in the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Hymn 203. Survey the <laughs> 
may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Saviour, the love of God, our Heavenly Father, and the fellowship and communion of the Holy Spirit be with each one of us now and forevermore. Amen.